Good morning, SunWest. Uh, thanks, Greg, uh, for the update. And uh, just to circle back to the, the El Salvador houses that we built, uh, and thank you again for giving towards those the seven families that you saw on the screen. Uh, those uh, when we did our homes for Chris, Christmas campaign leading up to Christmas. Uh, you guys uh, gave uh, enough uh, money for us to build those seven homes. And we have actually videos of each of those families. Uh, obviously, it take too long on a Sunday morning to show you all those videos. But if you'd like to see uh, those videos, uh, when we hand over the keys to those families, uh, they, they've each sent uh, kind of highlight videos. And, and thank you. So um, powerful, powerful stuff. And we had a few teams that were able to, to zoom in and participate with those families, even though we were from a distance, and seeing, uh, you know, the joy and, uh, yeah, just what we were able to be a part of, even uh, from a long ways away. Uh, we look forward to being there in person in, at one point in the future, uh, but for now, it's still, uh, we thank, we're thankful for technology that we can do that type of thing uh, from here. Um, and one other thing before we jump into uh, the, the sermon for this morning, um, I'm still riding quite high right now uh, from uh, last night. Uh, some of you guys know I'm a basketball kind of junkie, and I coach at the, one of our local high schools here at Centennial. Uh, I've been doing that for, almost, for about 15 years uh, with another one of our SunWest members, and we uh, won the... Boys Provincial Championship last night, so uh, it was a very exciting, very exciting weekend, um, the first time we've been able to do that, and uh, so I think we rolled into town at like 2.30 in the morning last night, so I don't know if I'm still like jazzed about it, or if I fall asleep halfway through my sermon, you'll know exactly why. Um, anyway, so we're jumping into uh, Shalom, our Shalom series, the Shalom Project, and we've been looking at Shalom in four uh, spheres for relationships. First, uh, shalom with God, uh, shalom with ourselves, shalom with others, and shalom with the world. And today we're going to begin shalom with the world. Uh, but before we unpack what that means, uh, I want to remind us that these four relationships are all connected, uh, that they're not separated, and, and they're all interconnected with one another. Another, they impact one another. And the order of them is important, the order of how we've covered them. And we started with shalom with God, uh, because in the beginning of time when Adam and Eve uh, chose to go their separate way, it was a story about them, but it's also a story about us, that we as humanity have chosen to turn our backs on God, uh, to be God of our own lives, so to speak, and to do things the way that we want to do them. But God in the beginning actually created a certain uh, way for us to live, a way for us to have true life. Uh, and so where that relation, when that relationship went south, when that shalom was broken with God, uh, it actually impacted Adam and Eve's uh, understanding of their identity, our understanding of our identity. It impacted the relationships with others horizontally, uh, and then it had an impact on the world. Uh, and so as God uh, brings us into shalom with himself, back into peace and reconciliation with himself, uh, it actually begins to work its way out from there and heal those other relationships. And so we've talked about the importance of uh, recognizing who God is and who we are, our place in creation, uh, worshiping him, giving our lives to him, and then we're formed by him. Uh, and so our identity comes out of that place. Uh, we live in a world uh, that says, you create your own identity, you figure out who you are, uh, but we know that we were created with an identity. We were actually created uh, to be God's kids. 
to be God's representatives in our world. And so as we worship him, as we give our lives to him, it actually gives us confidence and a clarity and an understanding of who we are and our identity with ourselves. From that place, we're now able to love others as we love ourselves, love others in light of who we understand ourselves to be and who God is. We're able to see people the way that God sees them, and as we see them the way that God sees them, we can love them uh, increasingly more the way that God loves them. As we live out that mandate to love God and love others, uh, it starts to have an impact on the world around us. So all of these things uh, are connected, uh, and the order of them is, is important. And so when people look around at the world, and they say, what in the world is going on? The Bible actually has an answer for that, uh, but you won't see it from out there. You actually have to go back to the beginning and understand what happened uh, between God and humanity. God created us to, created us to have uh, dominion and rule and authority in the world. He created us in his image, which means that the decisions that we make have an impact on the other people around us and on the world around us. That that decision, that, ca- that capacity uh, to create has potential for good and potential for evil. So when we look around, we say, what's happening in the world? Instead of looking out there, we need to begin to look in here and to recognize that it moves out from that relationship. So the world, what in the world does the world mean? The word world, uh, it's used often in scripture, and it's the Greek word cosmos, uh, which we get the word cosmos from in English. Uh, and so when, we're, when, the, when the Bible says world, this is the word that it is using, but this word that's used in scripture means more than the way that we use cosmos. When we use the word cosmos, we often think of space and the air and the sky and uh, the universe and these types of things, and that word does mean that, but it means far Uh, more than that. Uh, And so I want to dive in to what this word is actually talking about this morning, and that's going to set us up uh, to understand uh, the complexities and how to apply this word in our lives and set us up for the next couple of weeks. Uh, And so to start off with, I want to rewind. When we talked about shalom with self, uh, we we talked about the word flesh, which is the Greek word sarx. And flesh is basically our primal animalistic drives for self-gratification, for power. Uh, It's the part of you that actually uh, has its strongest desires, but they're not necessarily your best or deepest desires. And there's a difference between our strong desires and our deep desires, between walking by the flesh, as the scriptures call it, and walking by the spirit. Uh, And so flesh is seen uh, in this sense as a negative thing. And not that the desires are bad or negative, uh, but that when we are living primarily by the drive of those desires, it leads to destruction for ourselves and for others. Uh, and so these desires are in all of us as human beings. Uh, these desires aren't necessarily evil, but left unchecked, they lead to destruction and death. And so we thought about this uh, in that, when we talked about shalom self and its implications for us personally. Uh, but when the Bible talks about the world, now it's actually taking the concept of self Uh, and expanding it to a corporate universal level. So when you have a group of people, when you have a society of people that are driven by its animal desires, the result of that is what we have 
in Scripture is what's referred to in one of the ways it's used as the world. So the world we could understand as corporate flesh, corporate sarks. Collectively, when a group in a community, a society of people actually elevate their human desires, those strong desires, as their primary motive for living. Uh, there's lots and lots of examples of this. Um, one example of this that I was thinking about, I don't know if how many of you guys remember the world before uh, streaming music. I mean, we got any music fans here? So back in the day, they had tape cassettes, and I know even before that, they had, what do you guys call them, records, and then eight tracks, eight Eight tracks, yeah. Um, and then records, and then cassettes. And uh, I, I, I kind of grew up in the area of cassettes. My parents had the records, I had the cassettes. I had favorite cassette, uh, favorite cassettes that I would, I knew exactly how many seconds to rewind. Um, you know, I love Brian Adams growing up. Um, and Brian Adams, everything I do, I do it for you. I don't know why, but like as a junior high kid, that would just hit me in all the feels. Uh, and so I remember it was like 23 seconds or something from rewind from the end of everything I do, I do it for you to the beginning of the song. Um, but so we had cassettes, then we had CDs and music was expensive, you know, to, to really get into music. There was a nice thing about that because you really got to know, know an album. You bought an album and then you listened to it over and over and over again and you wore out your cassette or then you wore out that CD or got scratched. Uh, but then something came on the board and it was Columbia House. I don't know if you guys remember Columbia House. But you sign up for it, and you get 12 free CDs, and it was amazing. And I remember signing up for Columbia House um, right near the end of its time. Uh, you know, the, the hitch was if you sign up for the free CDs, then you had to buy so many CDs over the next so many years. Uh, but I signed up for Columbia House. I got 12 free CDs, and then Columbia House collapsed, and it didn't have uh, a business anymore. And I got 12 free CDs, never had to pay for one CD. It was glorious. Um, but what happened when Columbia House collapsed and all the, in, in the music industry? Well, what happened was uh, a little something called Napster. Uh, anybody remember Napster? Anybody use Napster? Okay, we got a few people here. Uh, and so Napster, what Napster was, uh, was this, uh, it was an online, uh, online system where you could actually download music uh, that was pirated, uh, that people would upload, and you could download it for free. It was amazing. Uh, it's called stealing, uh, but it was amazing. And, and I remember like, not being so sure about it when, it when it started to happen. I was like, oh, it seems a little... And then all my friends were doing it. My friends were like, burning CDs, sharing CDs with one another. And I can, uh, you know, as a high school kid... I don't make any money, uh, you know, and so I had to like beg, steal from my parents to go buy a CD and make the hour-long drive to Brandon, Manitoba to get to the music store uh, for the new Pearl Jam album. Uh, so uh, this, you know, I was, I was torn, uh, but more and more people were doing it, and it just kind of seemed okay, and so I, down, I downloaded Met Napster, and I started, uh, you know, you, you, you type in the album that you want. Uh, and then you uh, and then you let it sit for the whole night. It was like a twelve hour download and in the morning you 'd get up and you 'd have like that album uh, that you were waiting to get and just hope that it was like a good quality album uh, and and so this this happened 
And everybody was doing it, and Napster was like taking over the world. It was ruining the music industry, and then artists were getting really upset about it. Uh, and there was one lawsuit with Metallica that got quite famous, uh, and they sued Napster. And uh, anyways, this, this was going on for, for quite a while. Uh, and I remember I went from like being not sure about it to being like completely okay about it, uh, and, and I didn't even have a conscience about it anymore. Uh, because there was a collective sense that this was all right. Uh, I mean, the musicians, they were making millions and millions of dollars. And us poor high school kids, we can't even afford the CDs. And so it just seemed, it seemed right, right? Like it, it seemed just. Uh, but that's what happens when there, a fleshly desire gets shared corporately and then there's a moral line that actually starts to get moved over time and it becomes okay. It's, a, it's kind of a funny example, uh, not so funny example, of what uh, we mean when we talk about the world in this sense, this corporate flesh. Uh, and then what's interesting is over time, I, I started to have a conscience about this and be like, I don't think this is okay. I mean, I love it and it's great, but, um, you know, it started to bother me. And so I decided not, I decided to stop doing that and stop downloading music illegally. Uh, and then... I'd have those conversations with my friends, uh, and they would be very reactive to it, like, you know, this don't judge me kind of response. Uh, and it's fascinating, as, as you watched it happen, that people, uh, that the sin of judging somebody else became greater than the sin of stealing. Don't judge me. Let me do what I want. Uh, and meanwhile, I was just trying to be attentive to my own conscience, Right. And so collectively, there, there becomes a, more, a new moral standard that gets kind of set, and then we impose that on everybody else, and we kind of have this don't judge me response. So this is, in a nutshell, what we're talking about in one sense of the word when we say world. Why would hundreds of thousands of people move a moral line to make stealing and piracy socially acceptable? Well, because they had a corporate desire. There was this fleshly desire that we gave way to, and then this idea of everybody's doing it, and so it justifies. It kind of took over the whole. It became more than one person's decision. It became a corporate collective decision of what was happening. Um, and this, we, we could apply this in so many ways. Love of, uh, when people love power, when societies and cultures love power, we can justify so many things, systemic injustices, corrupt political systems, uh, because it actually gives us some kind of advantage. And if there's things that are morally not quite in line, you know, that's okay, we'll turn a blind eye to it because the, the ends justify the means. Sexual immorality, you know, it's one thing when it's being lived out in terms of an individual, but you get enough individuals living in that place and you have the porn industry and an entire sexualized culture. You think of greed. You know, it's one thing for someone to struggle with in the flesh around greed, but that it's another thing for an entire society to embrace it to the level of consumerism, uh, to the gambling industry, to all sorts of uh, trajectories of where that goes. When you think of something like country music, it's one thing for one person to love country music, but then you go to a Garth Brooks concert and you just know that this isn't right. That's uh, <laughs> Something's gone incredibly wrong. There's a worldly collective result that has happened. Uh, so the world as corporate 
can be defined as corporate flesh. When we give into those strong desires, uh, those fleshly desires, instead of walking by the Spirit, we walk by the flesh not only as an individual, but now as a community, as a culture, as a society. Uh, and then the ends start to justify the means, and we, we lose the conscience of, of right and wrong and how we're living and whether the way we're living is actually in line with the values of the kingdom of God. Uh, and so we see this as the way the world is used oftentimes in Scripture. In Mark chapter 8, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? It's no good for you to pursue all of these things that the world is saying is okay, and it's the primary thing that you should give your lives to, but yet you forfeit your soul. Romans 12, verse 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. There's a cultural, societal mindset that is taking over. Do not conform to it. Be aware of it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. John says it this way, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, remember the flesh is what he's referring to here, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The world and its desires what? Pass away. And we're going to come back to that in a second. And so that's one way that the term world or cosmos is used in scriptures, but it's not the only way. Uh, We also see the world as humanity. Uh, And so this is where it gets confusing. You read some passages like we just read, and it's like, okay, God's obviously against the world. And then you read a passage that many of you know, John 3.16, it says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And so without understanding the layers of the way this word is used in the original context, it can be quite confusing. You read passages like we just read a few slides ago. And it's like, well, God's obviously against the world. The world is passing away, the world, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then we read John 3, 16. It's like, well, God loves the world. God came to save the world. He didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. You know, what is going on? Well, well in John 3, 16, it's, it's talking about a collective humanity, a collective humanity, not collective flesh, but a collective humanity that God actually came for us as human beings, that he loved us, that he came to save us. We see in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That was God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him, against them. And so the world, yes, can mean the corporate flesh, the corporate desires, these things that um, don't align with God's will that have somehow been bought into collectively by people. But the world is also used to refer to people and their intrinsic value as human beings. And so in one sense, God loves the world. And in the other sense, 
God can't stand the world, depending on the way it's being used. And here in 2 Corinthians, we see this, the, the bridge that's happening, not only between humanity, uh, but then into the third sense that this word is used, which is creation. The world can mean our corporate flesh. It can mean humanity, people, but it can also mean creation. And we know in the very beginning, and we've looked at Genesis 1 a number of times in this series, that God created the world and it was good. God created the world and it was good. It was in his plan in the beginning. God created us and, it was, and we were good. We had intrinsic value. The created world had intrinsic value. In Romans 1 verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, the cosmos, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So Paul is saying when we look at the world around us, and in this way creation, we look at creation, we can see the qualities of God, the goodness of God. We can see what God is like when we pay attention to creation. And so just to remind us to go back to this idea of shalom before we continue is, again, all of those relationships of shalom are connected. God, self, others, and the world. Now remember that the shalom or lack of shalom in every sphere is going to impact the other one. They're all connected. The world in its present state is living in the consequences of humanity's continual rebellion against God. The world is being affected by the sinfulness of human beings. The world in the created creation sense. In Genesis, we remember that Adam and Eve in humanity were given dominion over creation, over the created world. The decisions that they would make would have an impact on them, yes, on the people around them, yes, but also extending to the created world to which God put them in charge of. Now, this understanding has huge implications for how we understand God, ourselves, our place in history, and the future. In Romans 8, it says, For the creation waits, creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. I mean, this is huge. The entire creation waits in eager expectation for the image bearers of God, the children of God who were set in uh, authority and dominion over creation to start living up to the standard, the way in which God created them to live. Because the creation, the future of creation is actually linked and tied to 
humanity, God's image bearers, living out their calling. They're connected. And Paul recognizes that what's going on in the created world is not because of the world. It's, it wasn't, it's, it's not happening because of, it's not because of its own choice, is the way it says in Romans 8. It's not because of its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, the one being Adam, the representative of humanity. And so creation is hoping, waiting for a new humanity, a new humanity to rise up because its own liberation and freedom is tied to that. And so we have three layers of this word world. And if we're going to understand the scriptures correctly, we need to understand those, those three pieces. And so we have the world on one hand, which is humanity and creation, which is good, which God is in the business of redeeming, bringing shalom to that was good in the very beginning, and we read Genesis 1 and 2, and we read Genesis, Revelation 21 and 22, and humanity and creation are still very much at the heart of God's shalom project, and that's never changed. But on the other hand, we have the corporate flesh sense of the world. And this distinction is so important because there's been a misunderstanding that's been going on for probably the last 150 to 200 years um, that God's plan includes the destruction of the world. I mean, this is an incredibly unbiblical idea. On one hand, God is going to destroy the world, but he's going to destroy this corporate flesh, collective sinful part of the world. This part of the systemic manifestation of our fleshly desires that is impacting our culture, our society, creation itself, God is in the business of getting rid of that. But his plan is also to redeem the world in the other sense, to redeem humanity, to redeem creation. So God, yes, is going to destroy the world and he's going to redeem the world but we need to understand which world that he's referring to. And so, as I mentioned, the last couple hundred years, uh, there's been a popularization of, of this idea of the rapture. Uh, and just so you know, in 2023, we're going to do, a, do a, a series on the book of Revelation. We'll dive into some of these concepts at a, at a much uh, more detailed, bigger, bigger level. Um, but this one, from a broad, high level... Uh, we need to address, because when Jesus uh, came back, th- this is the understanding, when Jesus comes back in rapture theology, and, uh, and so the rapture refers to what's going to happen when Jesus returns for his second coming, uh, the idea of the rapture is that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take all of the Christians out of the creation world to go with him to heaven, take them from earth, go to heaven. And so there's been this assumption that the rapture, again, the last couple hundred years, that the rapture is going to happen. That, wasn't, that hasn't really been a question. And the question that people were only asking was, when was this going to happen? And the second question around when was this going to happen is, when it does happen, is he going to take us before the tribulation or after the tribulation, referring to the suffering uh, that Jesus predicted was going to happen? Uh, this uh, theology was further popularized in the book series Left Behind, 
Uh, and so this is the world and the mindset and the worldview and theological view that I uh, grew up in. I didn't, you know, wasn't aware of it at the time. It was just kind of uh, in the fabric of the church. I can remember being a little kid uh, in the bargain store in Clarny, Manitoba, and lose. And my mom, I couldn't find her. You know, the shelves were twice as high as me. And so you can't see over the shelves. And I remember losing my mom and running around the store, and I'm like crying. I'm like, where's my mom? And I'm looking at, you know, going down this aisle, I see people, that's not my mom, that's not my mom, that's my mom. And I remember having this thought, Jesus came back, and he didn't take me. <laughs> what? What did I do wrong? It, it was ingrained in my mind, even as a little kid, that, uh, you know, there's a chance I was going to miss the rapture, and Jesus is going to take all the Christians to heaven. I better be there. Um, I better be ready. Uh, this impacted me even in my uh, mind as a, as a teenager. Not quite yet. Sorry. Um, I guess I'm really dry this morning. They're like, it's time. It's time to go. Um, so the, uh, I, I, I remember even as a teenager, this idea, and... Uh, you know, just being 100% honest, I remember praying to God as a teenager, being like, okay, Jesus, I'm okay if you come back. Just let me get married and allow me to have sex before you come back. Like that, if I could pray for one thing, you know, as a teenage boy, like such carnal prayers. Uh, you know, those are honestly my prayers. I remember in 1999, I met a guy uh, at a youth conference he was in college, I was in high school, and, uh, and this was like right, uh, it, it was a conference that was happening right around New Year's time, and I remember going to the uh, youth conference, and, and this guy wore like the brightest, uh, loudest clothes you could possibly think of, and uh, his name was Terry, and I remember being like, you know, Terry, what's, I said, you know, why, why are you wearing all these co- cool, crazy clothes, uh, and he said, well, you know, in the year 2000, Jesus is coming back, and I want to be ready to meet him. Uh, and so he was dressing for the part, because uh, there was this thought that in the year 2000, uh, everyone, remember Y2K, this was going to be the end of everything, and Jesus was going to show up, and this was going to be the rapture. Uh, there was similar comments in 2012, uh, and then we have similar comments happening again here in 2022. Uh, and so this idea is not new. It's been around for a long time. It even goes into the 1800s. Jesus coming back. Uh, he better take us with him. And so this theological mindset actually came from, uh, comes from just a couple of passages in Scripture, one of them being in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, and it says, we tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. So that's a primary passage that rapture theology kind of came out of. But this the word that is used when it says meet, when the Lord returns is the Greek word parousia. Everybody say parousia. So this word uh, was a common u- word used in empires at the time. And it's when uh, 
you know, you had kingdoms versus kingdoms. And, and, and the king would leave his land and go, go to war in a different land. Uh, and, you know, kingdoms were battling against other kingdoms, uh, trying to find dominion, expand their territory. Uh, and then news would often come back to uh, the kingdom from which the king came about the status of the war, what was happening on the, uh, on the war front out there. And so people come back, give updates. Uh, and, and when the update came that the, that kingdom had actually won the war, this announcement, uh, there would be a parousia, this, this, this moment where the people from that kingdom would actually go out, out from their kingdom. They would leave that kingdom and have this parade or the celebration welcoming the king and his people back home. This word that's being used about meeting the Lord in the air is actually the symbolic use of this word of actually ushering the king of this world back into his home. That we receive the king back to his home. That the world was always intended to be the temple of God, the kingdom of God. God's people living under the will of God. And when we read meeting the Lord in the air as uh, in a literal sense of Jesus actually showing up and we're going to spiritually go to be with him in the air and he's going to take us into a spiritual heaven, uh, it's actually not uh, what the Bible is teaching. It's not the trajectory it's leading us towards. Uh, the second passage that we often get referred to is uh, in Matthew 24 or the parallel passage in Mark 13. Uh, it says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels. This is the passage that freaked me out as a kid. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, as it was written, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the second coming, the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. I mean, it seems to kind of align with rapture teaching and theology. Uh, but what we've somehow missed over the last couple hundred years is that uh, have we forgotten the story of Noah? I mean, the whole point that Jesus is, is talking about here in Matthew and Mark is, is a parallel to the story of Noah, in which God did rid the earth. God did take things out of the earth. But what he took out of the earth wasn't God's people. What he took out of the earth was evil. And so Jesus is saying, this is going to be like in the days of Noah, where you know, God shows up in a new kind of way, and he rids the world, not of his people to take them out of the world and then destroy the world, but of evil, of evil people, of people that aren't aligned with the will of God. That, that is the context of Matthew 24. Not taking out God's people to destroy the world, but actually ridding the world of evil. We can see the same tension in John 18 when Jesus making, he's talking to Pilate. 
Pilate's asking him questions before the crucifixion. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, this cosmos. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. And so when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he's saying, my kingdom doesn't operate the way the systems of this world, these corrupt flesh systems, operate. By violence, by coercion, my system is not, or my kingdom is not of this world in that sense. But right before John 18, Jesus is praying in John 17, and he prays to God, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So Jesus' agenda, his prayer, his heart is actually not to take his followers out of the world. His heart has always been to redeem, to heal, to reconcile, reconcile humanity and creation, to take out the corporate fleshly desires that are aligned with sin rather than the ways of God and take those out of the world. So this is so significant. If you base your life and hope on left-behind rapture theology, it begins to create something actually quite fascinating. It creates a posture of indifference before, uh, with creation care. A posture of indifference toward global warming, toward renewable energy, toward sustainable practices. Because it doesn't matter what happens in this world because God's actually going to destroy it. In, in fact, if you believe this type of theology long enough, uh, Christians become the most indifferent people to the things that threaten our world most significantly. It creates a posture of indifference towards economic unsustainability where a small percentage of the world are consuming the majority of the world's resources because if, if everything is going down anyways, then we might as well uh, drink and be merry in the meantime. It creates a frightening posture that whether it's Stalin, Hitler, Putin, or somebody else, that somehow these things are necessary evils in God's grand plan and what he's doing in the world. Because we know that the world's going to suffer, there's going to be tribulation, that, that these things are going to happen, and so Christians can almost actually be passive to the atrocities and the injustices that are happening around us because we somehow think it's part of God's plan. No, these things are hell on earth and have absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God and what God has been up to for all of history. And then on top of this, the world, and then in this sense, I mean people and humanity, the world around us, the people around us are looking for hope and the people that God has actually intended to be a light on the hill, to be salt on the earth, to be light in darkness, to be his representatives in the world are the people that seem the most indifferent to actually what's happening in the world. The goal of Jesus when he taught us to pray was to pray uh, that God's will will be done in heaven and on earth. Heaven and earth becoming one what was separated in the beginning coming back together. You and I are actually invited to be a part of his shalom project. And up until now, we've talked about God, self, others, and you know those things have been widely accepted in 
Christian teaching, but we have not taught much about our relationship to the world. As followers of Jesus, we should be the most concerned with what's happening in the world, the most concerned with what's happening in creation, the most concerned with what's happening on the political front, the most concerned at injustices. We should be uh, the voices that are speaking for the voiceless. This is our call as image bearers of God. And so we need to be very careful what we believe about God's plan for us and for the world because that has a huge trajectory on how we engage with the world today. Lastly, in Revelation, at the very end of Revelation, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely come from the water of life. He who is faithful witness. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And I remember as a teenager, as a college student, reading these words and being like, I can't pray that. I don't want Jesus to come. Where did that idea come from? Well, I associated the coming of Jesus with the destruction of the world. At the time, I could never say amen to that. I didn't want Jesus to come back. What if I was left behind? What, I, I don't want you know, everything to be destroyed. But as soon as I realized the narrative of the scriptures, that God was in the business of redeeming and reconciling the world to himself, it's a new day. I can read Revelation 22, 17, and 20 and say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The whole world is waiting. We're waiting, we're desperate, we're hungry, we're thirsty. This world needs nothing more than the Savior to come and reconcile the world to himself, to rid the world of evil. And that's something that Jesus invites us today to get behind and to join him in, in his Shalom project. I'm going to invite you to stand as we pray and sing and respond together. Lord, thank you that you love us, that you love the world, that you sent your son to save the world. Lord, we recognize as we look at the news feeds, we look at the world around us, Lord, that the entire creation is groaning. The entire creation is in birth pangs, waiting for the new creation to be birthed, waiting for you to complete what you started. Lord, we thank you that we get to be pockets a foretaste of heaven coming to earth. I pray, Lord, that we would take seriously the things that you take seriously, that we would have your heart on things going on in our world, in the created world, in the systems of injustice. Lord, that we would be a light on the hill, that we would be salt in this earth. Lord, when people look around and, and wonder who cares about these things, that they would look at us and say, there's a group of people that care about these things because we worship a God that cares about these things. Lord, we thank you that the reconciliation of the world is not on our shoulders, but you've promised that you will do it and we get to partner with you in doing it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Father, our, our hearts break 
look at our world as we see the destruction of what happens when groups of people, societies, nations follow their flesh instead of following your spirit. Lord, we, we, we want to be that pocket of people that walk in step with your spirit. We want to be that pocket of people that whose hearts break for the things that break your heart. Lord, we're mindful um, of what's going on in Russia and the Ukraine in particular this morning. And Prince of Peace, we just ask that step in, Lord. We don't even know what to pray. We just know that all of creation is groaning, is waiting. We say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, we are in need of your redemption. We're in need of your healing. We're in need of the Prince of Peace. We're in need of the kingdom of heaven to invade earth. teams available at the front. We would love to pray with you about anything uh, that might be going on in your lives. Um, If you're online, we invite you to email prayer at sunwestchurch.com. Prayer teams uh, are available by email as well. Um, But uh, thank you for coming. Uh, Go in peace. uh, Be the light of the world and salt of the earth. Representatives of Jesus in our world.